Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning, family. How's everybody doing? Oh, man, you guys are like lively today right on. I appreciate that. that that's helpful. That's helpful for me. So if I fall asleep, we got a problem. So, uh, so thank you all. We are continuing today in our journey through Genesis. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open to the book of Genesis. We are covering a huge swath of things today. Uh, but before we get to the passage that you see on the screen, just go ahead and turn to uh, chapter 5. Um, and we'll talk about that very briefly, and then we'll return to that at the end. But, um, you know, it's interesting. We learn about the account that we're going to talk about today, the account of Noah and the flood of his time. As m- Most of us learn about that event as children in uh, vacation Bible school or something like that, and we sing like lighthearted songs, Noah building Arky Arky out of gopher Barky Barky, right? Like we, stuff like that. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you're like, yeah, I'm sorry, I know that one too. Um, and we even like paint our children's nurseries sometimes with like animal figures, a little tiny ark with the giraffe head sticking out and all the things, right? But really, that's not the mood of this passage at all, man. This is one of the darkest and honestly, most uh, uh, horrific places in, uh, in the Bible. It's, it's incredibly sad. This is an incredibly sad time uh, in, in human history. So last week, we studied chapter 4, and so today we come to... Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> Leslie, yeah, chapter 5. Yeah, she's right on, she's right on. And if you're looking at chapter 5 there in your Bibles... It's just a big, long list of names, right? And actually, if you'll notice something, it's kind of like a big, long obituary. Truly, like it talks about this person, he was so old, and he had a child, and he died. And the repeated phrase in there is, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Um. Why is it that mankind now dies? Have we learned in the book of Genesis why mankind now dies? We weren't designed originally to die, but we do now. And the Bible tells us back in Genesis chapter 3 where we were um, that we die because of the fall of Adam. Uh, we die because sin entered the world, and this is the repercussions. We have both spiritual and physical repercussions Uh, for the entrance of sin into the world. And we don't only see it sort of our natural state as being born descendants of Adam. We also see it in our practical state because we continue to sin and rebel against God. And we continue to see further death and destruction that we today currently bring upon ourselves and into our lives. We see the fall. So we'll return to chapter 5 as we get to the end uh, because what you'll find is kind of tucked away in there, this string of and he died, and he died, and he died. It's an amazing truth about God's plan to remedy this curse of death. And we'll return to that at the end. So I've titled today's message, The End of All Flesh. 
the end of all flesh. Because most of our time will be spent looking at chapter 6 and this catastrophic flood of judgment that God brought upon the earth where God himself says he was going to bring an end uh, to all flesh. Obviously, this sort of thing, this, um, this reality of the death of virtually every person on the face of the earth is a major thing. It's, an ama- it's, a, it's, it's sort of a soul-shaking thing, and it should prompt in us a very realistic question, and that is the question of why? Why? It's a not, that's, that's the natural response when we read something like that, and that's going to be the question that is the focus of our time today. Now, our text, as you may have noticed, we ended last week in chapter 4, and I, I mentioned at the close of our gathering last week, I said, hey, for homework, read chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and everybody was like, okay, <laughs> you know, don't worry, we're not going to cover all of those in detail today. If you read ahead, what you, what you probably noticed is that the, the meat of the text is kind of front-loaded. It's, it's heavy in chapter 6. Um, and then um, the middle chapters of this section of Genesis are, are like the gathering of the animals on the ark and a record of the rising and falling of the waters and Noah trusting God uh, while he was on the ark, waiting for God to deliver him. So the meat of the chapters, especially for our purposes here today, are to be found in chapter 6. So let's read chapter 6 together first. I'm going to spend the major uh, part of our time here. Everybody in Genesis chapter 6, let's read the Word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Pause. Now, this is not uh, putting a ceiling on the individual lifespans of human beings. This is God giving a sort of a countdown clock. It's going to be 120 years before the judgment comes. It's 120 years until the flood comes. Pick it up in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. A cubit's about 18 inches. Um, Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh shall make uh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. Now, there are not only heavy things, but there are also lots of controversial things in this particular section of the Bible. Also, not only controversial, but misunderstood sections in the Bible. And that's really unfortunate that things are really misunderstood and controversial in this section because... Uh, like the uh, rest of the early chapters of Genesis that we've been talking about and we will continue to talk about, these are foundational to the rest of the Bible's history. It's sort of, all of history builds on these things. So before we dig into what I believe the Lord has as the message actually this morning, I want to sort of clear the way for the message by very briefly, hear me, very briefly, not adequately, briefly addressing some of the more common questions that we find here in this section. Um, we'll take them sort of one, one at, a, at a time as they appear in the text, and we'll go really fast. Um, but if you have more questions about these questions, my, my, uh, the MC that I lead is on Wednesday nights at 6.30. And uh, we meet at Brian and Amber Black's home. We'll be glad to talk with you more, or we can talk right down here in front after the gathering today. But let's just take a stab at them first uh, to clear the way for the message. The first thing we see in the text is this weird, uh, for some people weird, mention of the sons of God mentioned here in the opening of Genesis chapter 6. Now, if I open that can, I'm going to have to open it all the way, so I'm not going to open it all, all the way today. Um, there, there are several different views about what this phrase, the sons of God, mean, and it's not something I'm dogmatic about. It's not doctrine we hold as a church collectively. Uh, but my opinion is, uh, as I've, I've actually taken a, date, a deep dive on this topic, is I believe that the sons of God mentioned here are angels. Uh, particularly these sons of God, uh, these angels were in league with Satan and were set on corrupting the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. Um, again, if you want to talk with me more about that later, we can. The second thing that we see is uh, sort of an elephant in the room is the idea of the flood and the ark itself. Again, there's, there are good Christian thinkers on uh, both sides of this issue, this issue, but one of the questions that's raised is, was this a, a global, like a worldwide kind of flood, or was this a local flood? Was this a smaller event, or was it a, a global sort of thing, both inside the church and outside the church? Um, that's, a, that's an open question, and again, I'm not dogmatic about it, but my view was that this was a global event. I believe that this was a flood that covered the entire earth. Uh, I'll tell you why, a few, a few reasons, but the biggest, um, I believe, is because the judgment was global. The judgment was on all of mankind. 
um, the passage is crystal clear about that. And so since the flood was the means by which God was judging, then that means would need to be global as well. Besides, look at it from a practical standpoint. If, um, if it's a local thing and God gives you 120 years notice, what are you going to do? I'm going to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. No need for an ark. I got 120 years to head out. Uh, the animals would also probably know. They see, uh, they feel volcanoes and stuff coming. They'd probably head out. No need for an ark then. Not to mention the fact that um, doesn't God, uh, pull it up on the screen, Genesis chapter 9. Check this out. Uh, verses 13 through 15, God says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, that's Noah and God, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Have we had lots of local floods since then? Oh yeah, for sure. So it would make sense then that God is talking about something he never did again, um, a global flood. Um, so I don't, I don't think it could have meant uh, something local. Just uh, thinking through these things uh, and reading what the text actually says, I think, I believe, helps us out. Uh, speaking of practically, uh, thinking practically here, here's a bonus one. Some people think the account of the ark must be a myth because there's no way with the size of the ark that Adam could have fit two of every animal on there. You ever heard that? Have you ever had that question yourself? Again, reading what the text actually says um, helps us think through those things. It doesn't, didn't say that Adam took two of every species of animal uh, on the ark, it says two of every kind, of every sort of animal. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, then we saw that there were kinds of animals, and all animals are descended from those certain kinds. So it makes sense here that God told Adam, take representative kinds upon the ark. And given the dimensions of the ark, we know that the ark could have had the capacity of about 500 railroad cars. So there would have been plenty of room. Uh, for that sort of thing, for, for representative kinds to take place. Again, I'll be glad to talk with you about that later. There's been engineers that have actually done studies of the capacity of the ark, and I'll be glad to show that uh, with you. So the reason that I took the time to at least briefly mention those common questions is because it's important that we see this account of the flood as actual history. It's super important that we see that this is actual Real history. Now, it's true that there are different uh, versions of this account in most ancient cultures throughout the world, but that doesn't mean it's not history. It means the opposite. Think about that. If most uh, ancient cultures around the world share a particular story about history, the most logical conclusion is they share a common event in history that they're talking about. Now, the Bible being the Word of God is the account that records this accurately, but it stands to reason that there's a source being talked about here that's common. It points to the reality of Genesis. So that's all the housekeeping we'll do for today. hope that clears the way a little bit so you at least hear the message. Again, uh, my MC is at, on Wednesdays at 6.30, and so we'll, we'll be glad to talk with you more about that there. So the account of the flood, if you're a note taker, you may want to write this down, the account of the flood is history. And again, that's extremely important, and here's why. Because as I said at the beginning, what takes place in these early chapters of Genesis sets the stage for all of reality, not just biblical history, but all of reality. You know, sadly, we tend to get our accounts of history from the weirdest places, from like James Cameron movies. 
It's the weirdest thing. Like, oh, we see uh, Russell Crowe made a, new, a movie about Noah and the Flood. Well, that must be real. Listen, don't get your history from James Cameron movies, okay? Don't, don't do it. But, but one thing, uh, that being said, that that otherwise totally messed up movie about Noah and the Flood got with some accuracy was the reality and gravity and weight and seriousness of wickedness and sin. It did hit on that pretty well, and that, the, the seriousness of the reality of wickedness and sin is the point of this passage of Scripture. And so today, we're going to see true wickedness. We're going to see judgment that it rightly deserves. Again, I said that this is one of the most horrific places uh, in the Bible. And it's because of sin. And sin is because of what? The fall. Th- thank you. Um, you don't need to be a pastor to know that. Um, the sin is because of the fall. And if Adam hadn't fell, I would have. Right? Wouldn't you? We don't only fall by nature, we fall by choice also, don't we? We do. So, um, what we're going to see today is that, you know, uh, there's this battle on a cosmic scale uh, where Satan and his seed are warring against the woman in her seed, as as prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. And namely, not only does Satan hate us, the seed of the woman, he hates the ultimate seed of the woman, the Messiah through whom all salvation that's going to be, anybody that's going to be saved is saved. Um, So that led to Cain murdering his brother last week that we read about. We read also about Lamech killing a man. And we see here Moses describing the ever-increasing wickedness in Genesis chapter 6. So we're only, check this out, we're only 10 generations removed from Adam at this point. And things are so corrupt that God sees fit to bring judgment Righteous judgment upon the earth. So we get to the meat of our time together today. What we see in our text, if you're a note taker, is total evil and total judgment of evil. You know, we've dealt with some uh, potentially tricky things in the text. This is the most tricky. This is the part that people want to hear the least. This is the part where I get uncomfortable as somebody up here trying to communicate something I didn't write. <laughs> you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to communicate the Word of God. And this is where, honestly, again, as I said at the outset, the destruction of every living thing, if that doesn't shake your soul, you've got a problem. If that doesn't rightly make you say, whoa, 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 what's going on? Let's talk about this. Then you're not paying attention. And hopefully you are paying attention at this, the seriousness of what's going on. Um, and so let's talk about it. Because, you know, think about it. In our, our popular culture, you might be tempted to see God here as, like, worse than Thanos. Right? Thanos snapped his fingers in the Marvel movie and 50% of the people were gone? Uh, it cl- just clicked with somebody. What makes God different? Let's talk about it. Yes, he is, Nancy. We'll talk about that. Yes, he is. So you might understandably ask, how can you say God is good, yet here he is destroying everyone on earth? How can you say God is good, 
Yet here in this flood, he's wiping out everything. That's a good question. And how we answer that question tells us much about our understanding of God. Um, So how do we answer it? Well, first we have to answer this question by remembering who God is. Right? He is the author of life in the first place. He's the giver of life, is he not? And truly only God has the power to create life. Equally as God, only God has the authority to righteously take life. In fact, think about this. In all of our lives, God ultimately decides when we're born and when we die. That's the fact. That's the fact of of life. Um, But the ending of life, particularly due to judgment, you need to hear me, the ending of life, particularly due to the judgment of sin, is not something that God does lightly. It's not something that God does joyfully. It's not something that God delights in doing. See, ultimately, the way we view um, the judgment of sin boils down to how we view sin. Think about that. The way we view the judgment of something depends on how we view what that something is. And if we have a low view of sin, if sin isn't very serious in our minds, then we ultimately end up having a low view of God and His judgment of sin. But if we take sin seriously, then we have a high view of God. Because God takes sin seriously. And here's what I mean. Let's read uh, verses 5 through 7 again in Genesis chapter 6. Actually, 5 through 7 and then 11 through 13. And I'm going to point out and emphasize some key phrases. You'll see them emphasized on the screen. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, in verse 11. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we see things like wickedness, only evil, continually corrupt, filled with violence. All flesh had corrupted their way. The earth was filled with violence because of them. This is God's own description of what's taking place here. What's the point? Why would I point that out? Remember, we asked the question, why would God destroy under the heading of if God is good? Piece that together in your head. The question of why would God destroy only makes sense and only has any weight if God is good. And so we have to understand this question about the flood under the sort of the uh, the rules of God is good. That's why these things are wicked and evil and filled with violence and corrupt. The two things have to go together. And again, how we answer the question of why judge 
reveals a lot about our understanding of God. It boils down to this. You'll see it coming up on the screen. It boils down to how we view sin. If we don't take sin seriously, then we don't take God's goodness seriously. But if we take sin seriously, then we see that God is seriously good. God is seriously good. And a truly good God would both judge wickedness and provide a way of escape from that judgment. That's what a really good God would do. He would do both. He would judge wickedness, yes. And he would offer grace and say, if you want to be spared from the judgment, you can be. Here's the door. A good God would do both. Listen, family, that's exactly what the real God who's actually there did. He did both of those things. He judged wickedness, and he gave an opportunity to flee the judgment. Think about it. God had had waited at least 1,600 years since Adam rebelled before this judgment. And even in that, God told Noah 120 years in advance. This is, here's, here's your countdown clock, doomsday clock. Here it is, 120 years in advance. Second Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That means for 120 years, it's very reasonable to think while Noah's, uh, and whomever he hired or whatever to build the ark is hammering away, he's preaching the path of righteousness. Flee from the destruction that's coming. People are like, man, I got 120 years. It's all good. I'll, I'll get to that someday, man. You know, when I, when I get older or when I get serious or when I'm about to die or the flood's about to come, I'll, I'll commit my life to the Lord. Noah preaching righteousness, preaching righteousness for 120 years, pleading with people, please spare yourself from the judgment that's coming generation after generation. Escape the judgment. So, but God is righteous. And the judgment was coming precisely because God is righteous. And so we see the, real, the answer to the question, why the judgment on the earth? Why was the earth destroyed? The earth was destroyed because of the wickedness of mankind and our choice to continue to ignore the pleas of Noah. There's a brilliant English writer named Dorothy Sayers, and she says that there's two kinds of law. There's the law of the stop sign and the law of fire. Here's what she says. The law of the stop sign says that if you ignore it, you may get hurt. On the other hand, you may not. You may ignore a stop sign and get through unscathed. But the law of the fire is different. The law of the fire is irrevocable. If you ignore the warnings and cast your hand into the fire, you will get burnt. The violation carries its own judgment within itself. The rejection of God's precepts is like ignoring the law of the fire. The consequences are automatic and irrevocable. The warning that these verses must have been for Moses' people are the same warning for God's people today. So again, God is righteous, the judgment's coming, yet he is also gracious for 1,500 years and then 120 years of intense pleading with the people. We see in verse 7 
of our text. It's heartbreaking. This is, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. This phrase, uh, sorry that I made them, is like the kind of sorrow that a parent might feel when they've, they've warned the child a thousand times, don't play in the street. Please don't play in the street. Please don't, please don't play near the street. Get as far away from the street when you're playing as possible, and the child ignores, 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 and then ends up uh, getting hit by a car. The parent is sorry. That's what God feels. I, I, the God who loves us is deeply grieved and sorrowful when we bring about our own destruction. So indeed, uh, God indeed uh, judges sin, but he truly does not want anyone to perish. He really doesn't. In fact, he delays judgment for that very reason, because he doesn't want any to perish. Consider 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. This is talking about the, the return of Jesus. But it's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In your Bibles, flip over to Genesis 7. Let's keep going a little bit. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Genesis 7, 15 and 16. It says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Listen to this last sentence. And the Lord shut him in. This too is a very serious thing. God closing the door of the ark after 120 years of pleading with these people is a very serious thing for the people on the other side of that door. Do you see why? Do you see why God closing the door is a very serious thing? God had provided a way of salvation. God had sent a man, Noah, to preach year after year, generation after generation in hopes that people would listen. But there came a time in the flow of history that God closed the door. And so it will be, 2 Peter tells us, for the return of Christ and the second judgment of the world. Look at the rest of that 2 Peter passage that's coming on the screen, beginning with verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Here's a reference to the flood as a warning, not just then, <coughs> excuse me, but a warning now, that we ignore the warning that we see here in this account of the flood at our own peril, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It won't be by water, but there will be another judgment. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
Here's our context for what we read. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So that's true at the uh, return of Christ, the final judgment. But if we think about it, it's also true in our own individual lives, is it not? There um, will come a time in each of our lives, if we don't follow the Lord, that He will shut the door. Um, Listen, if, if you know me, you know that's not a scare tactic. If you know our church, we normally, we don't, we don't, we're not scare tactic people. But it is the truth. And I, and I have a, 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 a loving duty to tell you that truth. There will come a time when God will shut the door. Listen, the Lord is righteous. And he is mighty and he is serious. He's serious about our sin. He will shut the door. But thankfully, God is equally serious about providing salvation from sin. God is serious about grace. Do you guys understand that? He's absolutely serious about grace. So I want us to close today not only looking at total evil and total judgment, but total grace that God offers us. During the flood, we have this beautiful statement in Genesis chapter 8. You want to flip over there? Genesis chapter 8, very first verse, first part of it says, but God remembered Noah. Amen. Of course God had, remembers Noah. He has not forgotten Noah. One commentator explains what Moses meant in verse 1. He says, God remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. So what we see by God here is a renewing of a prior commitment that's being renewed now in action. God is taking action according to the promise that he made. God is now beginning to deliver from the impact of the flood because the second half of the verse says that God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. After 370 days on the ark, the waters subsided and Noah and his family and all the creatures came out of the ark. Look at verse 20 with me in Genesis chapter 8, read 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And the text tells us that Noah immediately recognized that God had saved him and his family by grace alone. How do we know that? Because Noah's response was by building an altar. Noah's response to grace was to make a sacrificial symbol of that grace. Noah's recognizing what God has done, just like we talked about in our missional communities last week. 
here we see God responding to God's grace in faith in a way that symbolically represents atonement that needs to be made. Noah is looking forward to the real sacrifice, the promised Messiah that was way back in Genesis chapter 3. And God's response to Noah then is what? God gives grace. Noah responds in faith. What does God do with Noah? He makes a covenant with Noah. God is a saving and covenant-making God. It's what he does. Uh, And it's been his plan all along. He has ordered the entire flow of history here so that forgiveness can be offered, a real relationship with the God who made you. All of history has been ordered to that end. Let me show you what I mean. Again, we kind of skipped over verse uh, chapter 5. You can flip back there if you want. Chapter 5 in Genesis. Um, again, it's just a big list of names, right? Big list of names. We don't know everything about why God put that list of names there. We, we, don't, we don't know why. But notice you see the generations of Adam listed from Adam to Noah. This is an account of the flow of history, right? And I don't know if this was a a conscious effort by the descendants of Adam, but as you'll see, I believe that it is indeed a conscious effort, actually an intentional message by the Lord himself. Uh, Pull pull in here close with me. Look at this. Uh, I want you to notice the what these names mean. Somebody showed me this about these names, and I didn't believe them. So I got out my Bible study software, looked them up by their Hebrew root word myself. Here's what they mean. Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means incurable or mortal. Kenan's name means begotten. Mahalael means the blessed God. Jared's name means shall come down. Enoch's name means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means a strong man who is stuck or the captive. Noah's name means rest. Can we just read that as a sentence? Let's not add anything. Listen to this. Man appointed incurable. Begotten, the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the captive rest. Do we not have the gospel written in history, you guys? We have the gospel message in his. God is literally the author of history, and he is the author and finisher of our salvation, is he not? The question only remains, will you trust him? Will you trust him, and if not him, who? Just like Noah pleaded uh, with the people at the time of the flood, man, I... I'm, uh, I'm here to plead with you. Will you enter the door of salvation? Will you? Consider Jesus' words in John chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 11. You'll see them coming up on your screen. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All Jesus asks you do to do is to lay your sin down. Put your, 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 
your weapons of war against Jesus down. Quit fighting him. Let him save you. Uh, the forgiveness of your sin has actually already been accomplished. Jesus says he'll lay down his life for his sheep. He did. All that remains for you is to accept the forgiveness. Grace is there. Noah is pleading. God is having me build an ark, guys. Grace is available. The door's open. Just get on. People are like, no, I'm good. One day, God closes the door. They did not have to perish. Neither do we. There is grace for us. There is salvation for us. There is a door. His name is Jesus. The door is open to everybody, but there's only one door. Maybe you have, uh, maybe you're already a disciple of Jesus, and you just you've kind of lost sight of whose you really are. There's grace for you too, man. There's grace for you that was, um, that was given and planned for you before the foundation of the world, before you could ever earn it or before you could ever be disqualified from it. It's grace for you. When we turn to the Lord through the Messiah that he has given through the door, then the Lord gives us the best thing possible. He gives us himself.